You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Yes, please take a seat and leave that passage open, although you should know that whereas we normally uh, take whole books of the Bible and work through them just verse by verse and then sort of camped in the one passage uh, in our sermons this morning, I've got a short passage, and, uh, and so that means I'm going to be jumping around to other passages to kind of give some more substance to what we're talking about. So you might want to do that by flicking around in your Bible or scrolling through your phone, or you can just take a look at the screen and all the passages will be up there. If I haven't met you, my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. In fact, I'm the only pastor. And um, see my last announcement for more info on that. But... Um, you don't need me to tell you this morning that we live in a culture that is obsessed with identity. This is kind of a new thing, um, which you might not realize if you're under a certain age, but um, it has quickly become the thing that is most important about us. Uh, more important than what we do or, or how we do it is who we are, and specifically who I say that I am. Uh, so just so you know, I am a white Millennial, heterosexual, married, male. You probably don't hear me say that too often because nobody likes us. All right, we're we're like we're on the lowest rung when it comes to um, people who are cool. Um, uh, but that's 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 my identity. That's how I identify myself, and that is the most important thing about me. If you believe, uh, kind of the the, the court of public opinion, particularly when it comes to what people say on social media. That is the thing that is the most important thing. But it's difficult and it's becoming more and more difficult because those uh, identity markers that were at one point, one point quite objective are becoming more and more subjective. That is, I, I determine my identity rather than receive it at birth. I don't know if you saw the, the YouTuber, uh, what's his name? Ollie London, he's a white guy, uh, but he recently came out as transracial and um, had some surgery done to his eyes. He now identifies as Korean. So this is what I mean. This is the world that we live in. You can determine who you are. You can determine your identity. You can be whatever you want to be. It turns out that Disney princesses had it right all along. And so this is, uh, I say that, in a, in a blasé kind of way, but this is like, this is cataclysmic. Um, th- this, this new way of uh, identifying ourselves is, um, has its effects on the culture around us. I, I, by the way, with that guy um, identifying now as Korean, <laughs> um, I, I sent, a t- I sent that, that story, texted it to my sister who is actually Korean and uh, who we adopted from an orphanage when she was five months old. And she is like the classic um, millennial, Melbourneian, very open, very liberal, uh, and, her, and yet her response to me was just an N with about seven O's. Um, just like, oh, no. But this is the world we live in. Identity is the most important thing about us. How we identify 
as it becomes more subjective, the problem is how do we tell what the genuine article is anymore? If I can have surgery and just say now that I am Korean, what does that mean for actual Korean people? Is there any, is there any value in being the genuine article, in being legitimately X? This is a problem for Christians as well and has always been because uh, there have always been those who are believers in Jesus saved by grace and there are those who claim to be that without being it. We saw this uh, as a problem as we went through the book of 2 Corinthians last year. We saw that into that church in Corinth there were certain people who Paul calls servants of Satan. People who are masquerading as not only Christians, but leaders of Christians who were leading people astray. There have always been counterfeit Christians. And so the question for us today is, are there any evidences that I can look for in myself or in my church that are evidences of genuine faith? Evidence of Someone, myself particularly, truly being born again. In this passage this morning, we're going to see a couple of these evidences. I'm going to, I'm going to minor on one and major on the other one. Okay, So the first one I want to look at, these, this evidence for faith that Paul was really anxiously looking for in the Thessalonian church. Remember, he'd only been with them for four weeks, then he gets he gets chased out of town. In the next verse we look at next week, verse 17, he's going to say that he was torn away from them. Right? So he's had this experience of knowing them, loving them, discipling them, being the first one who brought the gospel to them, planting a church there, and then he's torn away. So he's anxiously looking back, wondering how they're doing. He finds himself 300 miles to the south down in, in Corinth, looking back at Thessalonica, wondering where are the genuine Christians there? Is what we began legitimate? What's the evidence of faith in that community? He sees, he remembers in his mind two evidences that he saw, and they're the things I want us to look at. Quickly, first of all, in verse 14, the first evidence of genuine belief is verse 14. He says, For you... Brothers and sisters became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you also you have also suffered the same things. So he looks at their he looks at that church and he sees their willingness to suffer, and he says that's evidence of genuine faith. And if you think about it, this makes sense. This was his defense of his own genuineness as a legitimate apostle, a gospel preacher in the first chapter that we looked at in this letter. Remember he said, when I came through into Europe for the first time, I got to Philippi, I was beaten and jailed. And from there, I continued on doing the same thing in Thessalonica. He says, that legitimizes the intentions I have. If I was about feathering my own nest, remember getting the things that philosophers of the age were used to getting, 
sex, money, power. If I was after those things, the moment I was beaten up and jailed, I would have given up or gone somewhere else where I could get the money and the sex and the power. The suffering legitimizes his intention. And he says, the same thing is true of these Christians. The willingness to suffer and be persecuted for being a Christian is an evidence of genuine faith. Not many people are willing to suffer for the sake of a lie, for the sake of deceit. Someone might want to, I don't know, for some reason, take on the identity of a believer. I've heard of some who have gone into churches pretending to be Christians so that they might groom people, young people. This is the the same old story with so much of the sexual abuse we've seen in faith communities. The, the pulling on of the sheep's clothing, even though I'm a wolf looking for people to devour. But the moment that person suffers for their faith, it normally exposes them. And so Paul sees this willingness to suffer, just like the Judean Christians did suffer at the hands of the, the Jews back in Israel. He says, you're suffering like they did, and that was evidence for them and you that you are legit. So we see suffering is not only evidence of genuine faith, the willingness to suffer, but it's actually, and this is, challenging for us I think it's actually a means that God uses to prove and to purify our faith it's not just an accidental thing that happens to some Christians in some parts of the world occasionally but it's actually God's means to prove and to purify this is how Peter says it speaking to his persecuted church in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 to 6. He says, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So he sees these trials, this this grief, this suffering, these trials. The context for his church is not just that people are being called names at work for being Christians, right? They're being killed, crucified, dragged off to jail, families torn apart, right? This is happening in his church, and he says that's happening if necessary. That's an interesting thought. Why would it be necessary in God's economy for Christians to suffer grief in various trials? Next verse tells you, so that, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says the purpose of this suffering, grief, trial, is the proving and purification of your faith. 
It is the means that God uses to get you from here to eternity. This is hard for some of us to stomach, not only because suffering sucks, to be honest, in all of its forms, but because some of us have been told that this is the very antithesis of what it means to be a Christian. I remember clearly having a conversation with someone in this church after one Sunday where we had shared a message along these lines and he was just haggard, worn down, beaten up, burnt out and he said the reason that he had come along here after a long period of not going to church and the reason that he left his last church was because he was told expressly that to be a Christian would mean that he wouldn't suffer, that Jesus would overcome all of those things that other people have to deal with in his life. He was going through a great deal of financial stress and he was told that that wouldn't happen if he was a Christian. He had health problems. He was told that wouldn't happen to him if he was a Christian. So what happens to the Christian who's taught that and then suffers? Well, they say what he said to me. I don't know if God loves me. Huh. I don't know if I'm a Christian. Suffering is not only evidence that we genuinely have been regenerated, but it's God's means to keep us that way. It's God's means to prove and purify our faith while we wait for his coming again, for the, the new age where there will not be no more grief, suffering, various trials. So, that's the first thing. That was my, that was my minor one, all right? Now you've you got you to get yourself ready for the major one. This is, this is big. This is where I want us to spend most of our time this morning. The second evidence of genuine faith in the lives of these believers was the fact that they welcomed the word. They welcomed the word. Verse 13, this is why we constantly thank God. Because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not only as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. What makes Paul praise God when he thinks of those believers in Thessalonica? Right, when he thinks about his time there, he's feeling anxious about how they're doing, the thing that gets him up raising his hands, praising God, is the fact that they welcomed the word. They welcomed it as the word of God, that which it really is. Why does that get him to praise God? Because just like suffering works for the flourishing of our faith, so it is with God's word to us. God's words that we by grace and not a few miracles have in paper or electronic form before us at all times, these words work. They work effectively in you who believe. My friend Peter Adam, who you guys know, likes to say that the word of God is not just 
authoritative over us in telling us what to do, but it has authority to change us. It does something. It shapes us. It enables us to flourish because that's God's will for us and this is God's word to us. So what does it do? The list is endless and the depth of the scriptures is endless. We'll never mine it to the bottom. We'll never arrive at some level of expertise. But God's word does at least these three things which might be the most important things. God's word increases in us faith and love and hope. Remember in chapter 1, Paul said this is what was so good about the Thessalonians. The thing that he saw in them which stood out overall was their faith and their love and their hope. This great sort of catch-all descriptor of the Christian life. I shared a couple of quotes with you on this when we went to this passage in chapter 1, but let me give them to you again from John Stott. He says, every Christian without exception, talk about evidence, every Christian without exception is a believer, a lover, and a hoper. Faith, hope, and love are thus sure evidences of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And John Calvin before him put it more succinctly when he said, faith, love and hope is a brief definition of true Christianity. So if you're ever in a conversation with someone, and I hope you are regularly, where you identify yourself as a believer and someone says, well, yeah, what, what does that actually mean? You could respond, faith, love, hope. I'm a believer, a lover, and a hoper. Paul is encouraged because he's seen the evidence of faith and love and hope in these believers, chapter 1, verse 3, and now he shows us why it is that he's confident that those things are going to grow and flourish. They're going to grow and flourish because these believers received the word of God. And it's the word of God that as we receive it, as we read it, as we soak in it, it changes us. So I want to look at those three things, right? I want to just ask the Bible, Bible, how do you help us grow in these three areas of our Christian faith, these three vital areas of faith. What does the Bible say about itself when it comes to these things, all right? So first of all, let's hear from Jesus. In John chapter 5, and I think it's verse 4, or 24, he says, truly I tell you, and there you pause because whenever Jesus says that, He's serious about something. And he's also the one who has authority over all things in the universe. So if you hear that guy say, truly I tell you, you listen, all right? He says, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Who is that person? It's the person who hears his word. And then the one, his, his good buddy John, who wrote that down from Jesus' lips, when he gets to the end of writing his book about Jesus' life, in John chapter 20, he says this about all that he's written. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. He's like, this, is, this book is just a, it's just a snapshot. It's not everything. But what I've written, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose for the words that he's written. That's the whole purpose of John's gospel. Indeed, for the Bible itself. It's written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So that we might have faith. And that faith might increase. And Paul says it himself in Romans. He says, Romans ten seventeen, Faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. This is the purpose of the scriptures. It's to awaken us to the reality of who Jesus is. That we might have faith that he is the Messiah. And that that faith would increase as we keep going back to the well. In the well is where I first had my taste of who Jesus is as my Messiah, my Lord, my Saviour. And then as I go back to the well, I'm back to the well, that faith is increased in me. The question is, do I keep going back to the well? Some of us at least live as if we're kind of satisfied with that first taste. I've drunk that, I've drunk from that well. But unless you keep going back to the well, then you'll die of thirst. You'll spiritually dry up. This is just a fact. This is not my opinion or my experience, it's a fact. I think what we're witnessing now is evidence of a, of a fairly significant crisis of faith. I don't know if you noticed this, but that last lockdown sent a lot of us over the edge. It was like, we were, yeah, we're all, we're, we, we were happy with the, we're, you know, we're all in this together thing until that point, and now we're like, screw everything. Remember, faith, as Paul conceives of it here when he speaks of it in the Thessalonians, is not just that they believe in Jesus, but it's trust in the faithfulness of God. Trust in the faithfulness of God. Now, if you are struggling right now with trusting in the faithfulness of God in the midst of this thing we're going through, this dark night of the soul, I would say, that's fair enough. If you're not struggling at all with trusting in the faithfulness of God, I think there might be something wrong with you. (laughs) 
I would also say if you're struggling to trust in the faithfulness of God, it might be that you have left aside the Word of God. If you are spending all your time doom-scrolling Facebook and not going back to the well, then, of course, you're going to be having a crisis of faith. Anyone would. I don't think it's a stretch to say that most of us read more content from social media feeds than we do from the scriptures. And that's just a problem. A problem of our own making. And it has its consequences when it comes to our level of trust in the faithfulness of God. All right, I could go on, but we, we need to keep moving. So faith, the Bible, hearing God's words, builds our faith. Not just the faith to receive Jesus as Savior, but the faith to trust in the faithfulness of God. What about love? How does receiving, reading, soaking in the scriptures build love? Love for God, love for one another. In Matthew 22, Jesus says this. Teacher, someone comes to him and says, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And his response is earth-shattering. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. This whole canon of Scripture hangs on those two things. Love God and love each other. That's the whole game. You want to understand what the Bible is about? That's what it's about. Hmm. He says this too in John 15. Similarly, he says, this is my command. You want to know what God commands of you? This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. That's a pretty big conditional clause. (laughs) Love one another how you deserve to be loved by one another. No. Love one another as I have loved you. What does that look like? No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. That's Jesus' command. Love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. Paul talks about it in Romans 13. He says, Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves... Another has fulfilled the law. Colossal statement to make. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. 
and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't read the scriptures without getting this. There's a lecturer at Ridley College where I went. He wasn't there when I was there, but um, he's there now and he's written a book that's just come out, which I really recommend to you. In fact, I might just buy for you to give out. It's called, I don't know, I never remind, remember these things. I think it's Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible. Anyway, I got an early copy of it and I found this quote to be very convicting. He said, Scripture is jam-packed with teachings and themes about love, love for God, love for the church, and love for our neighbours. By reading Scripture, we discover the prominence of love in God's instruction to us, and we develop a spirit-endowed desire to love God and to love others. It is through Scripture that we should feel compelled to hear Jesus' double love command to love God and love others. You see that? It's not only information, we discover what God's on about, but it's power. We're endowed. A spirit-endowed desire is given to us to do it. We can't maintain this kind of abstract, theoretical, theological stance. Well, yeah, I learned in the Bible that Jesus is really big on love, and that's interesting, isn't it? You can see how that has developed through Western civilization to give us the... That's interesting. But if it stops there, then it's pointless. It's lifeless. It's not just theoretical understanding. It's a spirit-endowed desire to actually do it. Love God and love others. Hey, everyone just look at me for a second. Here's a scandal. This is scandalous. The fact that some of the best Bible teaching churches that I've been to are also the coldest towards outsiders. That's scandalous. That shocks the heavens. God save us from ever being that church. I will trade in so much of the Bible expertise and theological theory for a loving church. And the, the beautiful thing is you don't have to choose. Getting off the topic here. Oh, I'm on the topic. I'm just getting off the trail. I had a conversation not too recently, uh, not too long ago, quite recently, with someone who said that uh, I knew that they weren't going to church and hadn't been going to church for a long time. So it concerned me because I think if you stop going to church, you'll eventually stop being a Christian. So I said to this person, What is stopping you? What's the greatest barrier to you going to church? And they said, The Christians. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's fair enough. Christians can be pretty annoying. 
And churches are weird. Hardly anywhere else in society do you have so many different kinds of people thrown together into one family. It makes it hard. It's much easier if you can just choose the people who are like you and like the things that you like. It's much easier to get along. And so it's driving so much of the tribalism of today. It's much more comfy. So I say, that's fair enough. But you know that the same God that you say you love calls you to love not only himself but his people. And this person was very direct. They said something like, look, I love Jesus. I believe the gospel. I read the Bible. That's more than most Christians. Why do I need to go to church if I'm maintaining myself through those means? Fair question. I answered with Jesus, which is always a good way to go. If you're stuck in an argument with someone, stop trying to come up with anything clever and just use Jesus. All right? If you want to know who the genuine Christians are, this is what Jesus says in uh, John 13. He says, I give you an... Uh, sorry, John 13. The, yeah, that's right. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How will people know that you're a Christian? Jesus says they'll know if you love one another. None of the things that my friend mentioned as a defense for his faith abstracted from a church community register with Jesus. Or at least they're meaningless without the main thing, which is the love that we have for one another. Augustine, St. Augustine, has a rebuke to people who are in my friend's case. He says, whoever then thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not yet understand them as he ought. Translation, you don't get it. Unless your Bible reading and Bible study and theological extract, extrapolations lead you to love God more and love his people more, then you haven't got it yet. So, our faith is built through soaking in the scriptures. Our love is built by soaking in the scriptures and so is our hope. And this is the major theme of this whole letter, as you know. This theme of hope. Hope here, it refers to um, our confidence that God is for us and that he is coming again to make all things right and all things new. That's what hope is. Christian hope is confidence that God is for us 
And if God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us and he is coming. Jesus is knocking on the door. He is coming to make all things right and all things new. That is the, the theme that you're going to come back to over and over again in this letter. He finished every, every chapter by referencing the second coming of Jesus. This is the thing that we put our hope in. Unfortunately for us, this hope is a fragile hope and it's sort of battered by our lived experience, not unlike faith. It can be a fragile hope to know that God is for me and not against me. It can be a fragile hope to trust that 2,000 years since he left, Jesus is coming. And so this is why the scriptures are so important. They are the, the, the Bible is like a booster shot of hope. Unless you go back regularly for that booster shot, then that hope is going to diminish and diminish until even if you say, yeah, I hope for these things, I'm confident in God, your lived experience will be very weak. You see this in Psalm 77. This exact thing is going on for the psalmist. All right? This is what he says. He's suffering. He's experiencing this dark night of the soul. And so he says, has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Seller. Seller just means stop. Just stop. Think about this. Is, is this what's going on? Has God forgotten us? And then once he has stopped and considered it, this is what he decides to do, and this is the key. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High. Right, I'm going to remember the years of God. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. That's... What you need to do if you want to increase your hope, your trust that God is for you and that he's coming to make all things new. You've got to remember. My wife likes to say it like this. She tells us this a lot, that you need to cultivate a trust that God is for you in the good times so that in the dark night of the soul you have something to hang on to. You do that cultivating work by seeing what God has done over and over again right through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. God proves himself to be trustworthy. We can, we can confidently put our hope in him because he will not Fail us. Paul says this is the whole reason that this stuff is written down for you. Romans 15, he says, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. 
So do you have hope? Confidence that God is for you? Confidence that God is still in charge, even though all your friends on Facebook are saying that this pandemic is evidence that the Satan is in control of the whole world, and unless you do exactly what I say, then you'll all go to hell, right? Are you being overwhelmed by that pessimistic, unbiblical, faithless sum- summation of things? Or are you, have you unstuck yourself from that garbage for long enough to go to the well where you can be refreshed, where you can remember God is for you. Jesus is on the throne and he's coming to make all things new. Hope is a perilous thing, you know. They say it's the hope that kills you. Which is true if you put your hope in things that can fail you. The great German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he came to the conclusion that God was dead and that it was all a myth and that there was nothing objective in the world. There was no heaven and no hell and no morality and not much of anything really. And so he said this, In reality, hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs man's torments. Put that on a coffee mug. (laughs) But he's right. He's right if his worldview is the true one. He's wrong if it's God himself that your hope is resting on. Put your hope in your marriage or your finances or your nice shiny new car and you will be disappointed. Hope will turn out to be the worst of all evils. It will only prolong your misery, your torment. But put your hope in the unshakable certainty of God's goodness and grace and it's... It's a beautiful thing. Go to the Bible, my friends. Go to the Bible and find their hope for your souls. J.I. Packer said it beautifully. He said, as God the Father is a God of hope, so his incarnate son, Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, risen, reigning, and returning, is a messenger, means, and mediator of hope for the Bible is, from Genesis to Revelation, a book of hope. You want to be filled up with faith and love and hope? Then be like those Thessalonians. Receive the word for what it really is. God's word. Powerful to shape us and change us and enable us to flourish. I would love you in your families over lunch or in your small groups this week or, I don't know, after church. I would love you to discuss with one another what it is that you're doing which is enabling you to get back to that well regularly. Most of us 
are finding it hard. So what are you doing? Is it the old uh, thing that we talked about recently, the Bible before phone? Get your phone in another room, put the Bible beside the bed. Not doom scrolling at seven in the morning, setting yourself up to be devastated. I don't know. You guys have got tons of ideas. Please, please share them with one another. I've gone way over time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word of yours, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not just authoritative to tell us what to do, but it has the authority to change us. And all of us here want, want to be changed. We want to be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We want to be made more like Jesus, who was faith and love and hope personified. Lord, I see my utter deficiencies in these areas, and I say, please help me. Please help us, Lord. Lead us daily back to the, the source of these things. Lead us back to your scriptures, your words to us that are powerful to affect change in our lives. Use this church, Lord, that as a community we might be the kind of community that helps one another soak in the scriptures, helps one another make all of life all about Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.